Todd B. Kashdan is a professor of psychology at George Mason University and a leading authority on well-being, curiosity, courage, and resilience. He has published more than 220 scientific articles, has been cited more than 35,000 times, and received an award from the American Psychological Association. He is the author of several books, including The Art of Insubordination, How to Descend and Defy Effectively, and The Upside of Your Dark Side, and has been translated into more than 50 languages. His research is featured regularly in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Time Magazine, and his writing has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, National Geographic, and other publications. He is a keynote speaker and consultant for organizations as diverse as Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, Prudential, General Mills, the United States Department of Defense, and the World Bank Group. Todd Kashtian, welcome to The Creative Process. Nice to be here. So I've been enjoying your book, The Art of Insubordination. And first off, I think I'm an insubordinate type person. So I wasn't sure if I was the first reader for this book, but so many times I found myself going back and oh, I want to remember that I have to really absorb that because it's not, perhaps we should unpack first this word insubordination because it's really principled insubordination, isn't it? Yeah, we're really talking about principled rebels. And when we talk about insubordination, we're talking about most of us live in these social hierarchies. And there's the idea this started in the military and still goes on where someone at a lower rank questions or challenges a command or a norm at someone at a higher rank, that's considered an act of insubordination. And one of the main problems of that, I think anyone who's listening can acknowledge, is it depends on the quality of the idea of the person who's raising the question. Your book combines both cutting-edge science and real-life stories, which I really love. And, you know, as a leading authority on well-being, curiosity, courage, psychological flexibility, and resilience, we certainly recognize that curiosity is at the heart of everything we do. And creating a culture of lifelong learning here is a, sort of a rallying cry. So in your own study, which I believe included more than 800 participants from the USA and Germany and a range of industries, you demonstrated that curiosity brings comprehensive benefits to the workplace. How did your research show you that cultivating curiosity and principled insubordination can lead to better learning, creativity, and well-being for people and society? Well, I mean, what we did was we found links even accounting for mindfulness. So better than mindfulness curiosity and the willingness to be open to other perspectives and reveal divergent perspectives. It's linked with more innovation. It's linked to greater social support for your ideas. So you're talking about finding allies, more work family integration, less burnout, more engagement, and then a greater tendency to experience flow where you lose yourself in your work in the workplace. And there's these wide ranging benefits that occur. And you know, what you find is the two dimensions of curiosity that are the most beneficial in the workplace. One is called joyous exploration. And that's really just this pure, pleasurable sense of wonder that there's just kind of, there's a lot of interesting things in the world. And I just know less than I think I do. And I want to be exposed to that novelty. The second one is gets less attention, which is what we call stress tolerance, is that when you have the lore of the novel, the divergent, and you know the mysterious and complex, there's always a level of anxiety. You are moving away from the knowns to the unknowns, and you are going into the face of acknowledging there's uncertainty, and you don't know how things are going to turn out. The people that can better tolerate that without trying to close and reach an answer quickly 
they're the ones that we are more likely to be creative, more likely to be innovative. Yes. And it's something you've been studying in different degrees all your life with your studying curiosity and teaching and all these things. But why did you decide to write this book now about insubordination? So it took about six years. So this is before Trump became president, before COVID, before the moral panic about iPhones. And I just realized there was this whole body of literature on minority influence that no one had put together into a book for the general public. And considering the racial reckoning that occurred during COVID-19, the extra attention to diversity, to disadvantaged groups, every moment of society, it just feels like it's more and more relevant of what I've been working on. If you don't have the numbers, if you lack status or you lack power, the way to be persuasive towards a group is much different than if you do have the title or are socially attractive in that group. You did an extensive study to write this book. I believe more than 800 participants from the U.S. and Germany in a range of industries. And you're really documenting this on multiple levels. Oh, I mean, the key is I stress tested everything that I study, which is would this intervention work on being influential if you were in a corporation, if you were in a parent-teacher meeting, if you were on a sports team and you thought that there was excessive homophobia or sexism in the locker room. And it kept on being that a lot of these interventions end up being very effective. And they start with really acknowledging how can we modify the norms to be respective of views that are different from what the majority considers valid. And for you personally, you've been questioning norms. You tell certain stories, you're questioning a rabbi, you're questioning from a young age. How did you cultivate that? And how do you think that that was passed on to you as a young person? Yeah, part of it's temperament. I mean, you find out from developmental psychologists at the age of six months, you can determine whether 75% of kids tend to be approach-oriented or avoidance-oriented when they're exposed to something that's really novel. Back in the mid-20th century, researchers would put a little babies into rooms with these robots that would shoot off electricity, look like little lightning bolts coming out of these robots, or have a stranger with a really bushy mustache and beard come in there and see how these little babies would respond. And you were able to classify a lot of these babies as being, they are willing to approach them, this novel robot or the stranger, or they would be in the corner sulking in tears and putting some action in their diaper. And then the question was, to what does this predict? And you found that temperament being approach-oriented predicted a resilience to having anxiety disorders at the age of 13 and 21. So part of it's temperament, but a, a lot of it is culturally, do you get incentivized or punished for deviating from the crowd? And I happen to be fortunate in that I had the type of teachers and the type of peers that rewarded that. And it gets down to one of the core interventions, which is in your group, whatever that group is, it could be a school, it could be a corporation, it could be an athletic team. Are the norms about cohesion, positivity, and unanimity? Or is it about critical thinking, independence, and the quality of the group's decision-making. And if it's the latter, you're going to get the benefits of dissenting views that's going to infuse more creativity and divergent thinking. And there's studies about that too, right? Where if the society is more homogeneous, that you'll be tending towards harmonious decisions, maybe the group think, which I know that you're critical of. And then if we have more diverse societies, of course, you can be too diverse that everyone's like arguing <laughs> and everyone's not able to get along, but that that will encourage new ways of thinking because there's just new perspectives being put out all the time. 
Yeah, the caveat I would give to that is we have to think of the cultural maxim that there's more heterogeneity within a culture than between a culture. And so even in Japan, which has some of the tightest immigration laws in the world, and they're a tight culture where they don't really allow that much deviance, there's a lot of innovation. And part of that is, is that there is such a respect, a collective respect that the group's decision making is more important than me showing my star power. And so you are willing to take risks and share your ideas, not because you want to be seen as the brightest star in the room. It's because you want the group to succeed. So for very different reasons, Japan shows a high level innovation compared to Silicon Valley, which is really about trying, unfortunately, focuses on star players as opposed to what makes the wisest, smartest group. But they get to the same outcome through different mechanisms. You know, that's really interesting. And I was wondering, I don't know if it's really possible to study it in a scientific way, to what extent the language and the grammar that we're born into and the cultures that we're born into may also condition our thinking to be either more passive and accepting or perhaps promote boldness, curiosity, and divergent thinking. Yeah, so we can really think about Hofstede studied about 120,000 employees in, I think it was 56 countries. And he found a, a few cultural dimensions that are worth pointing out that link up to what you're saying. You know, one of them is collectivism and individualism, which we kind of tackled, which is to what degree is your sense of self tied to the groups that you're a member of, your family, your social circle, the place that you work? versus that you are independent of your siblings and your peers and your coworkers, collectivism, independence. But another one is tolerance of ambiguity and tolerance of uncertainty. And some cultures tend to be really high on that. And one of those is the United States. And one of those is happens to be Australia and the UK, a lot of these European American kind of cultures where you are willing to accept a degree of risk in every decision that you make. And so you're willing to share ideas when they're still in their fledgling development, as opposed to when they're fully developed. And there's something to be said to really learn about this when you're teaching in a classroom or you're parenting is to allow people to share ideas, even though it might just be criticizing the status quo, even though their idea isn't fully developed and you can tinker and build on whatever it is they're starting from. Yes. And there's so many applications, as you said, you're talking about within businesses, within society, within politics, on the individual level, within families. But I want to go back to what you're talking about, cohesion, and then also diverging from the norm. And so on the one hand, you know, we really need to change our energy systems and everything that relies on them to transition to clean energy and mitigate climate change. And so, of course, that takes acts of insubordination. But once we adapt our systems, then we really have to work collectively and in some way surrender some of the freedoms to do this. So how do you draw those two necessities together? Yeah, really powerful and meaningful question that you're asking here. There's a couple of psychological elements that are embedded in your thought about climate change. One is we have to expand the timeline. And we often think about things in months and years as opposed to decades. And that's a big challenge of how human brains operate. And so if you think in the context of quarters, if you work in an organization of, in terms of building cars or building houses or building factories, then you're not thinking about that 20 years from now, you'll no longer be in the red, you'll be in the black in terms of income. But as you said, there has to be a collective willingness where we're willing to sacrifice the short-term, cheaper things for the expensive things for clean air now, knowing that the only way it gets cheaper over the course of time 
is the commons, is that the commons decides, is that we are going to spend money to make money later. By spending money, we can actually continue to improve the technology. So it becomes cheaper and cheaper to have a solar powered household, you know, electric cars and an infrastructure that supports electric cars that happen there. That's the challenging part. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is educate the public about this. Part of being persuasive is acknowledging the two-sided message of trying to talk about climate change. So everyone talks about the benefits and no one talks about the costs. You have to acknowledge short-term sacrifices financially, socially, and then value-wise. If you've identified with a group where the origin of the Fords, you know, Ford Model T cars. And if you're really a big car aficionado and you like Mustangs and BMWs and Lamborghinis, is that this is requires a deviation from an affinity that you identify with. People who are social activists about climate change, they do not acknowledge that there are psychological costs and social costs for individuals that haven't had the buy-in yet. And because of that, their critics can pounce on them immediately and say, I have too many pleasures and I have an intact family that is functioning well and my company is doing well. So why would I risk any of that for this 10, 20 year message that you're giving me? So the two-sided message is effective if you have the competence that you can talk about the logistics and the economics that are involved with these issues. So exactly, a book like yours could also help, which you, you discuss how you persuade people. You're not attacking them. You're showing them the benefits to them too, because that's the short-term thinking. Of course, there's benefits down the line and it's health as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, you want to be healthy, you want to be kind of cancer-free. So all these things also come with making those smart decisions in with regards to mitigating climate change. You've outlined many inspiring and insubordinates, Darwiners, like Rosa Parks, all these people who like made us think about the systems, but thinking about climate change, Greta Thunberg, you know, who would have thought that the world would be listening to a girl who has autism and really inspire this movement towards change? Yeah. So this is not evidence driven. This is a hypothesis. One of my hypotheses about why she ended up making inroads is because she is the underdog. It's because she has autism and because she's young and because she's not from a country where you normally typically get your heroes from. So you add those three variables together and there's what's called a, a novelty opening where there's so much novelty of listening to someone that's on the autism spectrum, that's from a Scandinavian country and that is underage is that you get the audience to listen to you. Now, so that's the number one goal of a minority is get the audience into their seats and they're actually going to listen. You want them to elaborate on your message. You want them to critique your message. The challenge that most people face, is they don't even get the audience and they're speaking as if they have the audience before they have the captive eyeballs and attention on the message. So Greta was pretty smart in the beginning in terms of she was really focusing on acknowledging that she's young, acknowledging that she's not an expert but also pointing out that she's doing her homework and it ended up being an attractive, intellectually humble way of bringing people in. Now, this is gonna get me some hate mail, but actually I think she deviated from that message as she got more publicity because she was no longer the underdog. And I would actually argue is that a little bit too ardent and a little bit too extreme of not acknowledging a two-sided message that their consequences lost her some of the potential allies that she could have had in this cause. So I don't want to critique her too well because she's as good as anyone could do who's under, you know, as a pre-adolescent, 
but I actually think that there actually there there is plenty of work on minority influence that could suggest that acknowledging the costs of changing, acknowledging the benefits of staying the same would have helped and only amplified her message. Yeah, I think so. And you addressed how about gathering allies in, and not being always so strident as you get power as well. How do you transition and actually achieve what you've set out to do? Uh, another example of someone that we've interviewed recently is Bertrand Picard, who did what people thought was impossible, world's first round the world's solar powered flight. So this is, again, changing the thinking, but he's embraced the business community because he has to be realist. That's the title of his new book. So I think that this kind of, how do you say, this is very much in agreement with what your critique against being too strident when you have the stage and having this sense of compromise and working with those who might seem at the other end of the spectrum. I didn't realize he had a book coming out. You know, I always, I talk about one of his last daily entries all the time in my class. Now, one of the things about Picard is about his entries in his journal that he ended up publishing or talking about after his around the world flight was the mixed emotions of his experience that he had. He talked about his anxiety. He talked about his gratefulness. He talked about his concerns about crossing a continent of realizing the war and strife of humanity brought him like this despair and sadness. And there was so much humanity in the way he described it. And again, so much intellectual humility that it, you were attracted to the messenger, which made you more receptive to the message. Now, you don't always get that opportunity to be this really attractive messenger, but he did a great job because he was actually showing is that this wasn't just an elite person who was a millionaire who could you know travel to Mars and back. This was a regular person who made major personal and financial sacrifices, and he made it very clear to the world. And so we're all rooting for him. And that's really what you want is when you're the minority voice offering a divergent or creative idea, you have to think to yourself, what are the strategies I can use to get people to root for me, as opposed to having the pleasure of schadenfreude of shooting down my ideas? Yes. And another thing that you address is that people, we want to stay comfortable. As you say, change is painful, right? So we you know, blindly assume that the prevailing system is better, maybe just because we just don't want to change. So what are some of those ways, as you outlined that, you know, the stages of insubordination that you can really soften people's thinking to open their mind? Yeah, there's a number of them. I mean, one of the, the first ones that comes to mind is thinking about what is your motivation for the conversation? So a lot of people want to win and persuade other people. And I've been using the word persuasion quite regularly. But the other one is having a dialogue and a conversation and not assuming that you have received and attaining the perspective of the other party that you're with. So you're trying to learn something as opposed to persuade. And there's this great work by my colleague Francesca Gino at Harvard, showing that when people have the motivation to learn as opposed to persuade, it is visible to other people. It changes the way that you ask questions and receive information. And so it leads to more of a interactive collaborative element. Because one of the things is people that disagree with you on these issues are not necessarily your enemies or nemeses. You just have to understand what are their values and what's their end game. And when you ask people what their end game, you often find even things as toxic and challenging as the abortion debate. When you start to ask people what people's end game are who are on the other side of you, you find that most people support women and most people want to reduce the number of operations that occur in the world. But their strategies and tactics for getting there are different. But there's something to be said about learning about the end game about people where you can start there and work backwards 
where you can find points at least, not where you necessarily agree, but you can understand their position so you can actually get into a room and try to develop legislation or try to challenge legislation and be on the same team. It's very interesting. And I wonder sometimes do people always really even know their end game or they don't even put it into words. As you say, sometimes it might be familial bonds or they just, they've been born, they're just in this group and they assume other people's end games. It's been passed on to them. And so how that's very hard to get people to abandon because there's a, you know, years of relationships, sometimes centuries of relationships that have been passed down to them. Yeah. I mean, so he- As a takeaway, I would say is that you should be asking people and you should figure out for yourself what the end game is. So in my world, in organizations, in a university and school settings, when you're talking about diversity initiatives, one of the first questions I always ask is, what do we want it to look like if everything works out exactly as planned? And most people, just as you say, have no answer to this. And this is very problematic. It's problematic to be a sustainable enterprise. It's problematic in terms of winning detractors. And it's problematic in terms of building into the culture because the next question after what's it going to look like if everything worked out is how are we going to provide evidence that it worked? And then we can reinvest resources into something else. And a lot of people have problems with this. So you keep it vague. So it says the diversity problem can never be resolved. It'll always be there. And one way of holding onto that view is never pointing out what the end game is and never pointing out what evidence would say that we actually are making some serious inroads. And this is not just for the diversity topic. This is for every issue. And kids should be asking their parents when they tell them that, listen, I'm going to ground you for two months. What's your end game? You know, what's the purpose of this strategy to keep me away from my friends for three and a half weeks for whatever transgression they engage in? And if parents can't answer that question, they lose ground in terms of being a viable, trustworthy authority figure. Exactly. And you can use a comparison to a, say, incarceration. That's a kind of mild form of, you know, familial <laughs> temporary incarceration. But what do we mean by that? So how are these systems of incarceration or education? How are they serving us? What is the point for you? You're an educator. What is the goal of education and being a truly educated person? Oh, my God. I love where your brain is going. So I don't know if you know, this is the cause that's most near and dear to me is the criminal justice system. And I think there there are so many current issues right now to be considering, but one of them is people normally, they're going to re-enter society. And so when you have these questions of, should people who are incarcerated receive education, particularly be able to get high school degrees and college degrees, and there's actually so much friction and so much disagreement with that. The question is, in terms of the enemy, Do you want people to come out who are educated and re-enter society and can contribute something? Or do you want people who actually are the same person when they came in and perhaps actually have sense of vengeance because they feel that they were unduly and unfairly punished or punished for too long or don't know how to re-engage with the non-criminal members of society? And I would say, geez, how can you not root for increasing the EQ, the emotional intelligence, increasing the IQ, the analytical intelligence, problem-solving ability of people. So when they come out and they're faced with the ambiguity of, I have no money, should I go back to the criminal life or go back to the non-criminal life? They would be able to make a good decision. What's the best way of increasing people's problem-solving ability? Reading books, talking about them, having conversations is the best strategy for adults to increase their intelligence quotient. Yeah. 
I don't visit on a regular basis prisons. We've done some interviews of projects around it. But if we really understood how the criminal courts work, that would make us create more humane environments. But I really like, because you mentioned so many interesting things, when you spoke about EQ, this is not something that is really taught. I know there's some wellness initiatives, but it's not generally taught in schools from a young age. Sometimes there's some meditation. It depends on which school system you went through, but I feel like it really needs to be more absorbed into our educational models. So thinking about how do you innovate such a archaic status quo system, such as the educational system, let's just play with America for right now. How are you going to be persuasive? So again, it's not only do you want to focus what's the end game in terms of the skills and the knowledge base that we want for our children when they walk out of a high school or they walk out of an elementary school? What do we want them to look like? How do we want them to act? How do we want them to behave? It's hard to imagine too many people not thinking about, I want them to have social skills. I want them to have some level of character and virtue. And I want them to be able to be somewhat independent and autonomous after being given instructions or guidance on an issue. And so from there, if you start with the question, of what do we want them to look like, then you can go backwards and say, to what degree are we providing the blocks and and the training to match up with those skills? And what you find very quickly is the answer is we're not even close because we're focusing on important things, you know, math, reading, analytical skills, history. But when you get down to the metrics of what you want some how you want someone to walk through the world you realize the fallibility of the current education system and and, and i really think that we really want to teach people critical thinking and that means something like this you should not know the political ideology of your teachers and at the college level the professor this is what i believe when you're in a classroom such that They are facilitating conversations and dialogue as opposed to trying to sell you and put their thumb on the scale for a particular point. And that's that is something that we're coming to grips with right now as people are really leaning with their ideologies. And I'm of the view that not all ideas are equal, but we really want to train people in terms of how can you work with information that is inferior? How can you figure out that that information is inferior? And how do you how to develop more superior? information gathering strategies and decision-making processes. That's so interesting. So you teach at George Mason University, and that must be very difficult because many people believe that everything is political. You know, so it's kind of hard. It's almost like limiting some of your vocabulary, I would imagine, to not promote a certain perspective. How do you do that? I mean, I'll tell you about my class today. It was a class on the cross-cultural nature of emotions and self and identity. And one of the things that we talked about was comparing Japan versus Canada and the United States is that when people are asked, I am blank, and you fill this in, these blanks, 10 statements in a row, you find that in America and in Canada, people are more likely to use personality descriptors. I'm sociable, I'm playful, I'm open-minded, I'm hardworking. And in Japan, in comparison, people are more likely to put social roles down. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter, I'm a worker, I'm a member of whatever town that I live in that happens there. So one is you see more about where you fit socially in the community in Japan in terms of their identity versus the U.S. and Canada. But the second one, which is even more interesting, 
is when people are given this questionnaire with their friends there or their professor there or their family there or their coworkers there, in the US, you tend to see the same consistent answers across all those different situations. But in Japan, people really show, have a whole different type of list. Like it's almost like the your personality is a 16 sided die and they're showing the side of their personality that is activated when they're with their family, when they're answering the questions about who they are around them. And when their friends are around, a different side of their personality is activated and they share that. The reason I bring this up is, and I make meta comments in my class today of saying, listen, this is going to be kind of an anti-patriotic message, which is that we have a lot to learn from other cultures to ask ourselves, is the American system, how we identify ourselves, better or worse than in Japan? And why? Because there's something to be said about this flexibility of seeing, acknowledging that your sense of identity is different depending on who you tend to be around. And we don't really do that as much and acknowledge that. What are the consequences? So I'm not pointing out where my view is. I'm just having these really provocative questions. And teachers can learn how to do that strategy. It is harder to do. And I think you point that out. But I would say is that it's worth the extra hour to think about how can I make this a provocative dialogue versus me lecturing about how good or how bad a particular country is? I think that's an interesting, if I can put that analysis on it, for the ways that you didn't want to put it so directly, is that yes, in the US, you might say many people, but not everyone, many or the US as an entity, as a political entity, tends to expect other countries to orientate around them. And if other countries do that as well, have a certain assumption in different collectivist societies or different, there is this maybe adaptability of not thinking of oneself as an individual, you know, who's maybe <laughs> has the only perspective <laughs> that, that is acceptable. So I, I'll say that if that sounds critical or not, but I think a lot of people might have this point of view. And I was born in America. So... <laughs> No, well, Maya, well, here's what I love about you said. So this is where I think is the important, I don't want to say middle ground, but the Goldilocks strategy as teacher is meta comments. So I'll playfully say, I'm going to say some anti-patriotic things. I'm being playful about it. Or I'll say, hey, I'm going to challenge some of the ethnocentricity of the United States. And I'm being playful about it. So just acknowledging the mile marker that we're diving into territory of questioning, hey, yes, the US is a superpower, but does that mean that they're right on everything in terms of social dynamics, right? And so those meta comments, it makes good writing and it also makes good teaching. And I think we should acknowledge that this is a very effective strategy of we're inviting people in as if it's a we, it's a us versus I am the purveyor of knowledge, me, the professor with the PhD, and here are these my underlings, these undergraduate students. And I really try to do the we and the us approach to teaching. And I think that's the way to develop critical thinking. Yes, just definitely. And teaching not always by making declarations, but teaching by questions. And it did work out that the scheduling uh, today, just as a, a side, but normally one of our participating students will be taking part and asking questions. So they'll add an interlude. Oh, that would have been great. I just wanted to say, because I, I believe in that very much as well. I am Bianca Bertolini, a university student at Sciences Po Paris and a collaborator with the creative process. This interview particularly speaks to me, especially the point Kashdan is making about creating individuals who think critically about society and the content they are being taught. I think it's interesting to look at how this plays out in an educational environment. 
I've had the privilege to study in a set of different educational systems during my life. I attended the Italian public school system up until high school. And while I believe that Italy has a special care for the richness of content that is being taught, by going abroad and studying the social sciences at a university level, I'm realizing how critical thinking is not often encouraged just as much. In high school, I remember how important it was to refer to the teacher in the most formal way, stand up as the teacher came into the classroom, and in general act very respectfully towards authority figures. In college, and specifically in my time here at UC Berkeley, I have noticed how much learning is achieved through fostering discussion amongst peers, and how important it is to encourage everyone's perspective to be heard. In my opinion, truly teaching students how to critically think should be a priority. We can only do this if we stop rewarding students for only memorizing content and create a safe space for everyone to explore their creativity and engage in recreational activities that go outside of the classroom. Having the privilege to study in different countries, Italy, France, and the US has also allowed me to see how much of this knowledge is dependent on the cultural context where it is being taught, much like what Mia was pointing out in the interview. I would love to see a reformed educational system similar to that Todd Cash then speaks of, where a conversation is prioritized over ostracizing those who have the courage to go against the grain. Now back to the interview. As you teach removing the politics, I guess you could also reflect on how the university atmosphere has changed in the last 10 or 20 years and what you've observed. Most of them are problematic trends. I think what you're seeing is people have the assumption of malevolence or guilty until proven innocent for a lot of conversations. And it, here's the thing, in an educational environment, not everyone is extroverted and not everyone is articulate and not everyone is assertive. And so if you really want to appreciate diversity, we have to appreciate the diversity of personality traits and dimensions. We have all the matrix there. And so you're going to have lots of people, students, administrators, faculty, staff, who are going to say things. It's not going to come out the right way. And they're trying, and we have to have, so I believe that there is a, important cultural impasse right now of looking for harm and you're going to find it and not allowing for ambiguity and complexity where you would say, hey, it sounded like you were saying that white people are being discriminated against as much as black people, but I don't want to assume that you were saying that. So do you want, can you clarify what you just said? So just saying it that way with that inflection and those words is very different than saying that was racist what you just said. And you may be right that they were racist in what they were saying. You may have caught them, but there's two things. One, they may not be. And two is, do you allow the lessons of Mandela and Desmond Tutu and everything and you know, the reconciliation that happened after apartheid and you're allowing someone to make a mistake and then be have reconciliation or forgiveness or a charity where you can say, listen, I'm going to give you a second chance to phrase that in a way that didn't come across as so dehumanizing and demeaning. And this is unfortunately has been lost a little bit in the academic culture, particularly in the universities. People are developing very strong, non-permeable tribes, and there really is a search for harm. And it is a deterrent for people sharing half-baked ideas or asking questions because the costs of being socially persecuted seem to outweigh the benefits of offering a unique perspective or them filling up their knowledge reservoir. And that is a very bad precedent right now. 
And on the point of social media, which has its costs and benefits, democratizing knowledge and allowing people to provide editorials or dissents, you know, but for you, what has social media done to our brains and how do you consume it yourself? And what is your critique? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm going to pivot from most of the really good arguments by some of my peers, because there's a lot out there by Gene Twinge and John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff and Cal Newport, a lot of these you know really great voices out there, Turkle. And let me say something that I don't think is said sufficiently enough. One of the challenges that we know from evidence about social media is it's not so much of an increase in tribalism, because I like to point out is if it was in the 1800s. If you disagree with someone politically, you would challenge them to a duel. So you'd bring out a musket and you'd freaking shoot each other outside. So let's not pretend that partisanship and animosity for the other parties is worse now than it was back then. Because, I mean, you couldn't do that now. What I think is really a problematic social cycle is the speed to which we make judgments and we reach intolerance. And it only takes one confirmatory message of what you are leaning towards or hypothesizing without any information search on your own or searching for evidence against what you believe. And you move very quickly to a sense of moral outrage and a sense of intolerance. And it's that speed, the speed to judgment and the speed to negative valuation and the speed to ostracism. I think that amplification of social media is something that actually should be given a little bit more consideration as we think about this. And I experienced the same thing as everyone else. I mean, one of the beauties of writing a book about minority influences, it's automatically makes me say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. And so I'm always looking for the alternative perspective of where my brain is going and particularly where the majority is going. So when there's a pile on, on a person, I mean, just go back. Do you remember Justine Sacco, that story? Yes. It was one of the first public shamings on the internet where, so in case the listeners don't remember, it was a white woman working, I think, in a tech firm. And then she was flying to Africa and she made a terribly worded joke on Twitter of saying, I'm going to Africa, hope I don't catch AIDS. Ha ha. I'm white. And then she got on a plane and, you know, however many hours it takes to go to Africa. By the time she came back, she was all over the media and, and major television stations, CBS, NBC, CNN, like Fox News. Everybody's following her to see when she lands and, and sees that she's been shamed online. It fits nicely with what I'm trying to say is that terribly worded joke. But actually, if you read about her history and the nonprofit she supported, she clearly was actually she was her joke was the opposite. She was saying it's absurd that people think that, but it wasn't worded properly, right? But there was a lack of charity and her life has crumbled. And I don't know where, I know she's essentially like a witness protection program where no one knows where she is right now. And I would argue that it is having that level of hunting for witches and a Salem witch trial kind of approach is not good for society. Not because you have to support Justine Sacco, because we don't want, what is the cost of young people growing up in a society where they have to worry that if they say something, they could be the next Justine Sacco? So to me, it's all about sociological precedence. And I worry about my kids not saying what they think and just stay quiet because they don't want to be the next Justine Sacco. And that's problematic. Yeah, I can't imagine a world without humor and a world, you know, when you're afraid to speak, it's a world without imagination and without metaphor and all these things. You have to be very precise. And I 
don't think we want to live in under a totalitarian regime. So we have to be careful that we don't move towards that. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Because I'm glad you brought up the term because we have such such universal animosity for North Korea, Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq, the Rwandan genocide, you know, the Soviet Union, for all these totalitarian regimes, and yet we're not willing sufficiently to acknowledge how there are behaviors and norms that are approximating that in the culture today, and particularly in the world of social media. So you've really outlined a lot of how insubordination can be used to advance positive movements in society. And could you just outline some of those positive effects, just systemizing it, being able to understand how we could each have a little bit of elements of insubordination in our thinking and where you see the greatest application? Yeah, big questions. So in the smallest number of words possible, dissent liberates the human mind. And so when we are around people that disagree with us, we may not agree with them, but it makes us ask the question, huh, do I have this right? Because here you have someone willing to risk their hide of going against the majority. Do they know something that I don't know? And so one of the things, some of the best research has been done by Charlene Nemeth at University of California, Berkeley, where she showed in the 1970s, where you could have a group of people that are deciding what should be the compensation for someone that gets injured on a job? She, and she would manipulate whether the majority was for uh, no compensation or the majority was for a tremendous, you know, one of those, you know, $70 million compensation because at McDonald's, the, the coffee kind of dropped in your lap kind of thing. And what she found was when they, if there was a single, a single minority vote in that group where they said, you know what, I think all of you are not paying attention to the suffering of this individual who had the coffee that dropped in their lap. It's not about the coffee. It's about the idea of their entire groin region being scarred and then being embarrassed and then kind of not feeling good about their body. Like, how do you compensate for that? They don't necessarily change. So her work shows that few people change their views about that case, but their attitude is subtly, implicitly changed. So when the next case comes, they are more likely to grant more compensation for that. So their views, so often the minority often may has an influence that is subtle and it's like a sleeper effect. You don't see it publicly, but privately, their views are just kind of altered ever so slightly, maybe 15 degrees, where they kind of recognize like, you know what, maybe I'm too stubborn and rigid in terms of not allowing any compensation for these injuries that occur in these, you know, these corporate cases that happen there. And that's what happens in society. And can I give a personal example that's a little bit provocative? So I was in a conversation with the shareholders of the Green Bay Packers. So for people who don't know, that's a football team in America, in Wisconsin. And so the public can be shareholders of the Green Bay Packers. They can buy into it. And in this meeting, there was a man who said, I have a big problem with the Green Bay Packers, this professional football organization, because they're supporting the LGBTQ community. And he talked about, I used to be one of them, and then somebody helped me pray it away, and I'm not part of that community anymore. Now, I'm not saying this guy's view was remotely correct, particularly like where we are today in society. But here's the thing, and not everyone's going to agree with me, but this is what this fits with the science. Having that person publicly share their bias, that they don't like that the organization is supporting the LGBTQ community, it 
benefits the group in several ways. One is the group gets to think about, wait a second, how are we supporting this community? And then what others, what other positions should we be taking on societal issues? And as a football organization, a sports team, should we even be getting involved in political issues? So just having those broader conversations that's, that is activated by someone who's a somewhat homophobic is a benefit for the group to be wiser and smarter for thinking about what are our values? What do we want to support? Why do we support these things and not support these things? All influenced by someone who has a relatively grotesque view of being homophobic in the group. And the reason I bring up this example is the typical reaction in groups right now is if you were to say something remotely homophobic or racist or sexist or ageist, you were to be excluded and ostracized instantly. And there's no consideration that in terms of, hey, now that I know your bias and your prejudice, now that it's out there, we can work with it. Now, it might require a punishment. It might require some moderation. It might require a conversation. And also, you prompted us to think about how are we thinking about this? It's a very different perspective. And I'm arguing it's better for groups and better for society. Worry about the police officers who say they have no biases, more so than those that say, you know, unfortunately, I do have these biases. That's part of this. I'm not sure if you consider that on the label, extract wisdom from weirdos. Yeah. Uh, but then there's like creative weirdos too, that I would say positively motivated too, that people just can come out with ideas that they don't even realize are innovative. So it is important to be open to that. I'm wondering, because you are critical of groupthink or just going along blindly, in your studies and research, do you analyze animal behavior to understand how we go along unthinkingly with things or just follow the flow of things? Because it's, a lot of our decision-making takes place on this unconscious level. And I'm not saying that, you know, animals and we are animals are completely unconscious, but there's maybe an automation in our thinking. So if you think about other primates, right, gibbons, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, you find that they're much more hierarchically structured than human animals in this case. So there's much less dissent for the sake of benefiting the group and more dissent in terms of here's it's almost like a game of survivor the reality TV show, where you make a move of dissenting because you want to be at the highest rung of the hierarchy because you have access to protection and you have access to sexual partners and the core elements of evolutionary biology. But not so much of, I'm going to speak because I care about this group, I identify with group, and I think that the group could be stronger. So it's a little bit different when you think of our closest animal cousins. We were talking about juries or about the structures of businesses and how people are competing for a central role or to have their opinion be paid attention to. Tell us about some of the companies and different organizations that you work with to teach them some of these skills. It's everything from government intelligence to uh, government agencies to top Silicon Valley companies. I mean, everybody wants to know how to be creative. Most of these corporations and government entities are are asking people to be creative, but what they do is anathema to the development of a reservoir of ideas for people to be creative, which is that you have to allow people to have half-baked ideas, make mistakes, ask questions, step out of their lane and connect with people that are outside of their job positions because the quickest route to creativity 
is mixing two ideas that have been mixed before. And so if you're at a music production company and you have the engineers that are in a separate building from the artists that are in a separate building from those that are focused on architecture and logistics, then, you know, if never the twain will meet, you won't see that there are opportunities of, hey, maybe it's not so much about the genre of music or their voice in particular, but maybe it's that we can actually alter the technology with this exact band musicians that we're working with. And so if you don't, if you don't have the characters that are willing to work together, and that has to be at the organizational level, if the boundaries are more permeable, then you're going to increase the number of ideas. And the greatest predictor that you're going to have creative thinking that's going to actually be effective in the world is the number of ideas that you actually access in the first place. And I think you know a lot of organizations forget this is you need to increase the number of ideas that come out to you. And one of the other strategies that's it's amazing how many companies don't do this is they still have group meetings where they first talk about an idea together in a group forum, which means that those people that speak the loudest, those people that are the most socially attractive and desirable that people want to impress, their ideas get weighted more and people are less likely to disagree with them because they want to win their favor. And the best strategy is that people independently share their ideas. It's brought to the group but it's not attached to individual names. And then when the group convenes, they work through the ideas without knowing where those ideas came from. It's such a simple strategy and change. And yet 2022, most organizations, including my university, we meet as a group and that's how we talk about ideas. And so you hear from the same three middle-aged white men eating up 80% of the airtime you know, for the meeting after meeting. And everyone talks about diversity and they forget it's often a process of how do you extract the unique ideas and get them into the room? Yeah. And there's a lot of interesting initiatives now as well. Sometimes you can have too many ideas too, but you know we have to think about a lot of solutions for cities and we're talking about climate change and where the citizens are voting on part of the budget. And so it's about narrowing that bandwidth so that you can't equally weigh everybody's ideas, but it's important to hear from different sectors of society who might not be the traditional decision makers, but might really know how one part of society works or one part of an organization works. I think you really hit it nicely. And the way that I fine tune that is you have to switch between generation and then judgment. And we can't be afraid of discerning which ideas are better than other ones. We have to be very careful about what information we have access to such that we're focusing on who the messenger is as opposed to the quality of their idea. So for teachers and professors that are grading papers, for leaders and managers that are evaluating employees, we really should try as hard as possible to be able to look at information without the name of the people there. So you can independently evaluate without making your personal relationships, good or bad, tied to that evaluation. And it's, again, it's simpler than we think, but it is fundamental to make sure that the quality of ideas improves. And that's really what when we're talking about principled rebels. We're not talking about increasing the number of rebellions. We're really talking about how do we improve decision-making and end up with better solutions. 
Oh, yeah, it's definitely systematic. You have many questions that you are constantly inviting the reader to question what they believe and what they do and how they could do better and how they could attract allies who have different points of view. It could take a long time to work through it, but I think that we could really have happier and more effective and more cohesive societies. If many people read your book, The Art of Insubordination, I'm just wondering as you look back at your other books, how it fits with Curious and the upside of your dark side they seem related, but approaching it from different points of view. Yeah, I do view it personally as a little bit of a trilogy. And so the first one, I was young, pre-father. And when I wrote Curious, it was really of like, here is this character strength, this psychological strength that is not getting sufficient attention. I mean, things have changed dramatically. Now everyone's talking about curiosity. But in 2008, Really, there, there was few conversations of this might be the ultimate strength in terms of how do we reduce political gridlock? How do we actually get people to kind of have productive conflicts? So that was the first one of like is emphasizing here is a, a neglected, underappreciated strength. The second one was how do we get to acknowledge and appreciate our whole selves, the whole enchilada, which means you have strengths and weaknesses. You have elements of your personality that are valued by society and elements of your personality that are actually devalued by society, but still functional. You know, even today when I have conversations in classes or people that read my newsletter, they have such issues with the idea that sometimes anger is helpful and sometimes anxiety is good. And I'm constantly amazed at how many adults with college degrees just say like, no, like anxiety is never good and anger is never good. And you know, even the Dalai Lama and Teknat Han, I mean, he wrote an entire book about the benefits of anger is that this is the seed of righteous indignation and so every civil right that we've ever had in society. And when we fought against tyrannical leaders, it all started with anger. And so, of course, there are, there are collective benefits that come from anger, even if it harms the individual physiologically by experiencing it. It's so important. And also in the arts, of course, you can't have art without conflict. And I think you have to really believe something strongly and to defend it sometimes or to be willing to, as you say, the risk of putting your life on the line or your comfort or everything that you knew was true and, and to sacrifice it. So this feed into anger. We do have to be able to face it. Yeah, I think about often if we had therapists for artists, if, if Franz Kafka didn't have depression and social anxiety, if, if David Foster Wallace like didn't have uh, his depression, and if you had uh, Sylvia Plath didn't have her depression, you don't want someone to suffer needlessly, but it gets really complicated of their experiences of the difficult darkness of humanity informed their ability to take the perspective of how hard it is to be human, and they produce great work as a result of it. And, you know, there's, it's all trade-offs. If you help them mentally, we probably wouldn't get the canon. Yes. And it's you reflect on the future and education and the challenges we face and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. Who are some teachers that, who are important for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I don't want to give away the story in the book about my favorite English teacher from high school. But I'll say is that I had a, a mentor, Lorraine Collins at University of Buffalo. And what she was really good about was pointing that you don't need to have a match between your identity and what you study. And she was just a great model of study what attracts you and intrigues you. And even if it causes social friction, because it's not the way that other people want to see the world. And then let the evidence do the talking for you. And 
she had this approach, just this very unique approach to everything in life. Like I remember because she was a parent and I wasn't a parent at the time in grad school. And she used to always tell me is that I'd ask her how she fits in exercise because she worked so much during the week. And she would say, I never look to drive my car to find a close parking space when I'm going to a store. I just park as soon as I see the parking lot and that builds in my exercise. And even to this day, I always think about her every time of like, why do we all fight and waste all this gas go back to climate change and all this time to get this proximal spot when most people value exercise and fresh air and most people don't want to waste the money on gas in the first place. And it's one of those very simplistic social norms that we just don't question. And it just gives an inroads to what else do we do so systematically and so mindlessly that we're just frittering our moments away. Oh, exactly. She was your teacher, but you also make us open our eyes to what we really weren't paying attention to, but we really should be. It's so important to question our ideas and what we do every day. So thank you, Todd Kashtian, for sharing insights into the art of insubordination and how we can all do more to responsibly question the systems we live in and for the important work you do in reminding us to follow our interests and curiosity, thereby improving our ability to be creative, think analytically, and be gentle on ourselves in a fast-paced and ever-changing landscape. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. God, I love the way you describe that. Uh, thank you for the amazing questions. I appreciate it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Bianca Bartolini. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbach. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at thecreativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.